Hi, this is John with Prodigal Church. We're so glad that you've downloaded this week's message. Our online ministry has enabled people from all over the world to access our weekly teachings. We're so grateful for you, whoever you are and wherever you are. For all things Prodigal, download the Prodigal app at your app store. And if you consider Prodigal Church your home, would you consider donating monthly at our website, prodigalchurchfresno.com. Thanks again for listening online. Now let's dive right into this week's teaching. In the summer of 2003, I was 22 years old and I had just finished my bachelor's degree in contemporary Christian ministries and biblical studies. I finished college. I was done. Okay, I'd been going to school since I was five years old. I was done. And I was hired at, as a youth pastor at a church not too far away from Prodigal. And after receiving my degree, I started to think about grad school. And grad school for the Bible is called seminary. And I remember talking to another pastor about this. And he said, if you're going just to get the piece of paper, don't do it. But if you're going, actually try and learn. So I, I majored in Old Testament. And I thought it would be great to be able to read the Bible in its original language. And it was not a very popular uh, major within the seminary. In fact, in my Hebrew 3 class, there were only three students total. Okay, myself and two others. I remember one day in class, um, the two other guys weren't there. And so it was just me and the professor. Okay, I'm 24 years old, I have to raise my hand and I have to ask him if it's okay if I go to the bathroom because otherwise it would just be him in there by himself. And so he's like, yeah, well, I'll go too. And so there we are, both leaving the classroom, going to the restroom together. Shalom. Okay, uh, and I got good grades in seminary and in college, but if I'm honest, there's a big difference between knowing how to get good grades and actually learning as much as you can. And it wasn't until after seminary where I began to read and study because I wanted to, not because I had to. And so I read and I began asking questions and growing and learning and changing. And I haven't stopped since. It, learning usually passes through three states. In the beginning, you learn the right answers. In the second state, you learn the right questions. And in the third stage, you learn which questions are worth asking. We have to move away from the complacency that creeps up in our lives, the complacency that says, you're done with school, you don't need to learn anything else new, you know enough, uh, you don't have to anymore. And the Spirit of the living God is declaring to you now that you are never too old to learn and you are never too young to learn. This is a key part of the spiritual life, of following Jesus. And in my own journey with God and the Bible, it has been the questions that have spurred me to more growth and more maturity in Christ. Asking hard questions about God and the Bible, instead of leading me away from God, they have had the reverse effect and brought me closer to God. But there are some really tough parts of the Bible. There are some passages of scripture that I wish weren't there. And there are some parts that seem to contradict one another. And what are we to do about them? And that's what we're going to wrestle with today. And we will no way be able to exhaustively answer all the questions and potential problems we have with the Bible in 25 minutes. But I do hope that what I share will promote a life of asking questions and studying and learning 
and growing. So first things first, it's okay to be honest. It's okay to be honest. People outside the church are asking deep questions about God and the Bible, and it is okay for the people inside the church to do the same. Uh, people of faith, you don't need to feel anxious, disloyal, unfaithful, dirty, scared, or outcast for engaging questions of the Bible or interrogating the Bible, liking some of it and not liking parts of it, uh, or diving deeper into what it says. I want you to know that you are not being disloyal to God or rebelling if you have trouble accepting, for example, that God would command people to commit genocide. Okay, more on that later. It is okay for you to, to interpret the scriptures differently than other Christians. Because within the Jewish tradition, the tradition in which gave birth to the Christian movement, disagreements are preserved. They're not silenced or marginalized. Opposing opinions sit side by side as a monument to this wrestling match with God in the Bible. We should learn to appreciate and embrace the spiritual benefit of keeping conversations open rather than closing them. For me personally, for years as a pastor, I would have people come into my office and they would ask amazing questions about God and the Bible. And I would give them all the answers. I would give them the answers that would silence their questions. And when they would leave in my heart of hearts, their questions were better than my answers. So number one, be honest. Be honest. Number two, there is a human element in the Bible. It was written by real people in real places in real situations. It was not dictated by God. This is something that we've been trying to reiterate through the first four weeks of this sermon series, and we want to reiterate it again today. It wasn't dictated by God. Uh, surely there are places in which it says, thus saith the Lord, but the Bible was written and compiled by people. There is a human element in the text, and God chose to do it this way. God chose to work through people. Picture it this way. Let's say you have two adult children, a daughter and a son, and your two kids couldn't be less alike, okay? Your daughter is driven. She would graduate college in three years. She's working 60 hours a week for a brokerage firm, establishing her career. She's a very serious person. And her younger brother, your son, he dropped out of college. He loves to travel. He loves to hang out with his friends and have new, exciting experiences. Imagine if both of your adult children were to sit down and ask you for your wisdom. They say, Mom or Dad, I value your wisdom. What guidance do you have for me in my life right now? Do you think that you would give the same advice to both of your children? No. Your advice would be specific to the child's character and to their situation. To the one you would say, honey, you gotta stop and smell the roses a bit more. You're working too hard. You gotta remember that life is more than career, than job. And to the other you might say, I'm so glad that you stop and smell the roses but I think you need to become a bit more serious about your career and your finances and your future. You would offer nearly opposite advice to the two children based on their different needs, their different circumstances, their different personalities, 
in their different contexts. Here's the point. The apostles wrote their letters to address specific needs and situations in communities of the Greco-Roman world 2,000 years ago. What Paul wrote to the Galatians concerning a particular situation may not be what he would say today, 2,000 years later, to you or to me or to our church. And I think this is absolutely the case when it comes to women and their role in the home and in the church, okay? This is a perfect example of this. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. As in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Some churches continue to read these verses as though they reflect God's heart for all time, God's will for all time. This was 2,000 years ago, in a specific place, in a specific context. The overall message and trajectory of the Bible points toward the equality and liberation of women from oppressive systems. Paul says elsewhere that there is neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. So I want to unequivocally say that women are permitted to speak. Women should have authority over men. And it is absolutely not shameful for a woman to speak in the church. In fact, the women I know are most often right. Okay? So we should listen. And I absolutely do not think that I am going against the scriptures in saying so. To consider the Bible as a flat text where every word carries equal weight, to read it literally, even when it should be read literately. It should be read in the cultural context and genre in which it was written. We often read the New Testament as though the first century Roman world was very little different from our own. But it was a very different world. The assumptions, the culturally accepted practices and norms, the way the family functioned, the cultural practices that Christians rejected were often quite different from our world. Let's consider America, our country, and how much it has changed just in the past 70 years, okay, since 1950. In 1950, the Soviet Union was our enemy. The Soviet Union no longer exists. Birth control was not yet available. Three out of four college graduates were men. Women could not serve as pastors in most denominations. Separate but equal was the law of the land, leading to separate rail cars for black and white people, separate drinking fountains, and separate schools. African Americans were regularly refused service at restaurants, department stores, and even public pools and parks. And these discriminatory laws and cultural practices were developed in a nation that proclaimed 90% of the people uh, were followers of Jesus. Yet they saw no problem with colored drinking fountains, pools, schools. Our world has changed most dramatically in the past 70 years. Think about how technology has affected us in this period of time. We've gone from rotary phones to pocket computers capable of connecting us to more information than we could ever imagine in the palm of our hand. We've gone from record players to iPods. Technological advances have helped us live much longer lives, creating pastoral issues that were not even contemplated in the 1950s. So much has changed in the past 70 years. 
the Bible was written 2,000 years ago. A lot more has changed since then. And it's okay to be honest about that. It's okay to acknowledge the humanity, the earthiness of the scriptures. God's okay with it. And then finally, the Bible doesn't teach answers. The Bible teaches wisdom. God is perfectly okay with how the Bible is. I can imagine him saying that if I wanted to tell you exactly what to do in every single circumstance, I would have. It does not work as an owner's manual. It wasn't made that way. And for a five-second tour to see how the Bible doesn't work like an owner's manual, we only need to flip to the book of Proverbs, okay? Israel's book of ancient wisdom. Towards the end of the book, we find two Proverbs sitting right next to each other, okay? Both are wise sayings, and both give the exact opposite advice. They're trying to act all innocent and inconspicuous, but don't let them fool you. Proverbs 26, verse 4, Do not answer fools according to their folly, or you will be a fool yourself. The next verse, answer fools according to their folly, or they will be wise in their own eyes. In other words, don't mix it up with argumentative morons, or you're going to come down to their level. And on the other hand, get in the face of argumentative morons and put them in their place. See, looking to the Bible for a detailed map of life might leave one feeling a bit lightheaded right now, right? Which is it? Which one do I do? Stop jerking me around, Bible. Just tell me what to do. No chance. Proverbs doesn't tell its readers what to do because Proverbs teaches wisdom. Wisdom isn't about finding a quick answer to the key of life, like turning to the index and finding your problem and then going to the right page and finding where it says the answer to the problem. No, wisdom is about learning how to work through unpredictable, uncontrollable messiness of life so you can figure things out on your own in real time. Both of these proverbs are good, wise, and correct. The question is, when are they good, wise, and correct? And that when depends on the situation that you might find yourself in. Sometimes you need to walk away from the know-it-all at the office party. In other times, you need to expose someone's ignorance at a staff meeting. Which you choose depends on a litany of factors. What sort of relationship do you have with this person? Do you have any history? Is your coworker under some stress or that, that's influencing his or her actions right now? You get the point. What needs to be done at that moment can't be perfectly scripted beforehand because there's countless factors. In real life, you have to wait until the moment is upon you and then do what you think is best right there, right now, in this situation with this person Wisdom, like what we find in the book of Proverbs, does not tell you what to do. It shapes you over time. So when the time comes for you to think on your feet, you can make the wise decision. And Christ tells us that the wise decision is the loving decision. Wisdom makes you fit to think for yourself. So when looking at the tough parts of the Bible, Number one, it's okay to be honest. Number two, acknowledge the humanity. And number three, the Bible was never intended to be an answer book. It teaches wisdom. And maybe you can sense this and perhaps not, but I have had my own spiritual crisis 
with reading and understanding the Bible. And to illustrate how this crisis arose in my life, let's play a little game. And this game is not a fun game. I'm going to ask you a few questions, and you just answer them, okay? First question, did God tell Abraham to kill his son? You say yes, but you hastily probably add, God actually didn't require Abraham to kill him. Uh, he didn't have to go through it. It was a test of faith. Okay, fair enough. Next question, did God command Joshua, King Saul, and the Israelites to kill children as part of the ethnic cleansing of Canaan? Is that a hesitant yes? Okay. My next question is pretty simple and straightforward. Does God change? Now, you might have a more confident answer here. You would say no, and you're quite correct. A cornerstone of Christian theology has always been that God is immutable. That is, God doesn't mutate from one kind of a being into another kind of being. The immutability of God is the solid ground on which our faith stands. Next question, brace yourself. Okay, since God doesn't change, and since you already acknowledge that in times past God has sanctioned the killing of children as part of a genocidal conquest, is it then possible that God would require you to kill children? You don't like this game? I don't like it much either, but bear with me. We're almost done. Last question. If God told you to kill children, would you do so? I know, I know, calm down, right? Of course, your answer without hesitation should be no, right? Under no circumstances would you ever participate in the genocidal slaughter of children. At least in Jesus' name, that's what I hope your answer is. Yet in answering with an unequivocal no to the question of whether you would kill children, are you claiming a moral superiority to the God depicted in parts of the Bible. After all, the Bible does indeed say that God commanded the Israelites to exterminate the inhabitants of the land during their conquest of Canaan, including women and children. Yet hopefully you find the mere suggestion of participating in genocide so incredibly atrocious and morally repugnant. What's going on here? Is genocide something that God used to command, but now he's changed his ways? Well, we've already agreed that God doesn't change. God doesn't mutate. So if God sanctions genocide in the Bible and God doesn't change, well, you see the problem. We are painted into a corner. Where do we go from here? In my own crisis of faith, I saw that our options were, my options were pretty limited. I, I, the way I saw it and see it, we only have three possibilities. Number one, we can question the morality of God. Perhaps God is at times monstrous. Number two, we can question the immutability of God. Maybe God does indeed change over time. Or number three, we can question how we read the Bible. Could it be that we need to learn to read the Bible in a different way. Not in a way where it fell down magically from heaven and every word is perfectly the same. It holds the same weight. If you suggest that we go with a version of the first option by claiming that 
When God commands genocide, it's actually not immoral. His views are higher than our views. Many Christians respond with these answers. But for me, that's asking too much. It's, it's asking me to violate everything inside of me. I cannot do this. I must not do this. Genocide is always immoral. The murder of children is always wrong. I know this, and you know it too. Who doesn't know that killing children is wrong? Only those who want to defend at all costs a flat reading of scripture can pretend that murder of children is not always immoral. In an effort to defend the simplistic, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, reading of scripture. But justifying genocide is too high a price to pay for the cause of defending, of reading the Bible a certain way. And so, in my own spiritual journey, I have learned to read the Bible differently than I was always taught. And I've never loved the Bible more. I've never been more enamored with Scripture, inspired by Scripture, and in love with Jesus. I really believe that we've said things about the Bible that the Bible doesn't say about itself. And when you give up the Bible as a flat text that fell out of heaven, you get it back as something so much more. And hopefully, this whole sermon series testifies to that. So, in my opinion, and this is opinion, did God order the genocide of the Canaanites? Did God order his people to kill men, women, children, and babies? No. But the Bible is the record of God's people's understanding of God in the ancient world. Sometimes the Bible tells us more about the people who wrote the Bible than about God. Israel's story doesn't lay down at every point what all the faithful through all time should believe about God. It shows us how the Israelites understood God on their journey, in their time, in their place. I have to say that I'm a lot less bothered by a Bible that tells ancient stories than I am about the thought of God exterminating an entire people group and giving their land to others. Think of it this way. I see it as God meeting people where they are. It might be an accurate portrayal of who they believe God is, but it might not be an accurate portrayal of who God really is. My daughter, Ivy, is four years old. And occasionally, she will call me in um, when it's time to go to bed. She should be in there sleeping, and she'll call me in, and she'll say uh, she's scared, or she had a bad dream, or whatever. Sometimes that there's, that there's monsters in the closet. Now, as a father, I could say, grow up. There are no such things, okay? Silly kid. Let me open the closet door, show you there's nothing in there but toys and clothes, and I'll close it, go back to bed. And that would be factually true, but actually of zero help to my frightened daughter. By contrast, a father who has passed his how not to be an idiot dad test, he would meet his daughter, I would meet Ivy where she is, and I would say, let me take a look. Then you open the closet doors, and you close it behind you, and you ruffle some of the clothes, and you bang some of the toys, and you shake some of the doors, and you come out with your hair all messed up, and you say, 
I crushed them. They were crying and whining like babies. One of them looked at me and peed his pants and ran away. Okay, they will not be coming back. Now you can sleep safely, my daughter. Daddy's here. Daddy will protect you. Likewise, God's voice to the Israelites in the Old Testament meets them where they are. God always meets us where we are. God allows himself to be talked about and worshiped and trusted by the Israelites within the boundaries of the ancient horizon. Sometimes what we see in God's people is a negative example. It shows us what not to do rather than what to do. The best part of the Bible, the point of the Bible, is to point us to Jesus. The Bible is to us what the star was to the Magi that very first Christmas. It leads us to Jesus. And Jesus is always pointing us to a real concrete difference in our world, to making a difference in our world. The most important part of reading the Bible is when we close it, because now we can live it. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Church Movement, would get frustrated when he'd be leading Bible studies and people would come up to him and they'd tell other pastors, I'm tired of not getting fed. I, I, I need more meat. So people leave one church and go to another church because they weren't getting fed at that church and now they're at a new church where they are getting fed. And John Wimber said to someone who kept complaining on not getting fed, he turned to the person and he said, listen, the meat is in the streets. If you want to experience the meat of God's word, go out to the homeless population and let a drunk throw up on you. The meat is in the streets. He went on to say that studying the Bible was never meant to be the meal. It's the menu. Half jokingly, he said, he sit around, we sit around eating the menu and wondering why we're not satisfied. We get fed, not when we read the Bible, but when we apply what the Bible means. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. The Bible points us to Jesus, the resurrected Christ, the world's true king, the God of the universe, who calls us to be a part of his kingdom, and not only to abandon earth to get to heaven, but to bring heaven here. And that's what he prays on the Sermon on the Mount. He says that we too should pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. We should be pullers of heaven into earth, into our homes, into our offices, into our cities, into our churches, into our nations, and into our world. God, I pray that as we wrestle through the questions of the Bible, that we'd find you, that you are in our questions, and that you're big enough to handle all of them. And so for those of us who are watching online, who are listening to this right now, who have been told not to ask questions or to doubt or to wrestle, God, I pray that, that they would have that freedom and that they would know what your word says in Jeremiah, that you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And so God, as we seek for you in these answers to these questions, God, may we find you. Thank you, God, that you love us, that you call us into relationship, and that you um, 
are near. We thank you for that, Jesus. We love you in your name. Amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. These last five weeks of binge reading the Bible together have really been incredible, and next week is the finale. We are going to be talking about the book of Revelation. And so we want to encourage you to come. Don't get left behind. As we rescue the book of Revelation next week, it's going to be an incredible way to end our series. We hope you have an amazing week. Peace in the Middle East.